Episode 192, Desperately Seeking Patient Centricity Within the Current Healthcare Ecosystem. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. This episode is a little bit different, and it's a little longer than our normal episodes. Don Lee from the Healthcare Biz Show and president of Glide Health IT and I discuss trends in the healthcare industry. We kick around transparency, convergence, interoperability, algorithms, organizational dysfunction. But interestingly, the conversation begins and ends with patient centricity. My name is Stacey Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Welcome to Relentless Health Value, Don. And welcome to the HC Biz Show, Stacey. Yay. So happy to be here. Yes. So we are doing a new experiment today with the HC Biz Show and the Relentless Health Value podcast. And we're going to record them both as once. And you may be listening to one or the other right now, but you're going to hear all the same stuff. So I'm really excited to do this with you today, Stacey. Yeah, me too. Our idea was a bit of a thought experiment here. We both spend a ton of time running around the industry talking with all different types of people about all different stuff. So we thought it would be both fun and enlightening for ourselves to have a conversation about some of the things that we've been learning and the trends and topics we've been seeing across the industry and come at it from all of these different points of view because that's the one thing we definitely do agree on, or one of the many things we agree on. Everything that's going on in the industry is viewed very differently by all of the interested parties. And they're all incentivized in different ways, and in many cases, very conflicting ways. That causes a lot of the things that happen in the industry that on the surface, you would look at and say, that's crazy. That doesn't make sense that that would be happening. But when you start to peel back the layers and you start to understand what are the motivations and why would this group do this or why would that group try to prevent this from happening, it all does, in fact, start to make sense. You may still not like it, but the world does, in fact, make sense and the system does, in fact, make sense. And I think that's what we'd like to do is break things apart with that in mind and think about what are all these different interests and what are all these different motivating factors? I'm not sure that it ever makes sense, Don. (laughs) 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 But you start to realize where the fractures are. You know, I've spent my career basically sitting in meetings with different stakeholders sitting at different sides of the table. And I feel like in many cases, my main job is to be a translator. You have one stakeholder on one side of the table who's saying something that they think is appealing and a benefit to the other stakeholder. And the other stakeholder gets a scowl on their face because it's anything but. I've had the opportunity in my career to see that miscommunication happen live time and everyone walk out of a meeting thinking that they did a great job communicating. And the fact of the matter is that what each party was saying, the other was not hearing. Yep. I agree with you 100%. And again, on the the technology side of the world, that's kind of a role I often play in my consulting life is exactly that, is I'll be the one sitting there saying, you're all nodding your heads in agreement right now, and none of you are saying the same thing. And I think that's the perfect segue into the first thing that we want to talk about here today. And that was, uh, you and I had a conversation about a podcast that you did a while back that was with Dr. Ann Beal. And you were talking with her about the notion of patient centricity. 
And the the opening comment or the opening dialogue on that podcast that you did with her was simply what is patient centricity? And her answer was kind of, well, it depends on who you ask. And we all have a different definition for it. And if you ask, you know, five people, you're going to get seven different answers or something, you know, something (laughs) along those lines. And that immediately struck me as it's like, well, yeah, that's true with patient centricity. That's true with interoperability. That's true with value-based care, with analytics with, I mean, we go on and on down the list and this is something that it just happens over and over and over again in healthcare. And that's exactly what you just described. It's that we don't always know how to talk to each other about this stuff. And the other kind of setup thing that you recommended to the, the book to me by Daniel Kahneman, mm-hmm. Thinking Fast and Slow, he wrote the whole thing as a way to create a language around this topic of fast and slow thinking. And in his words, right in the intro, he said, I want to give you a new lexicon to be able to have a conversation about the thing that this book is about. Because if you can't even have a conversation, if you don't have a language for it, you can't have a conversation. And if you can't have a conversation, it's not even just with other people. You can barely think about it. You can't have a conversation with yourself about it if you don't have the right terminology is, is his argument. So you think about patient centricity and all of those other things that I just rattled off where that tends to happen, where we don't have a common language that everybody kind of agrees on and makes sense on. Is that where we need to start? Do we need to identify what these things are and start to develop a common language around them so that we can be able to make sense to one another? I could not agree more. One of the trends that is very evident in the industry today is this idea of convergence, this idea of collaboration or coopetition that not only are there vertical mergers and horizontal mergers that are taking place in the industry, PBMs buying pharmacies, buying practices, buying insurance companies, but also individuals are realizing or organizations are realizing that they need to work together in order to it enact change or in order to continue to achieve the goals that they have either achieved in the past or which are necessary to succeed in today's market. If you cannot talk to each other to identify what the shared priorities are, it's really difficult to collaborate. So I guess that kind of brings up the next concept in all of this is this idea of collaboration. It's like one, and I think it ties back to this patient centricity is how do you encourage people to even collaborate in the first place? So you need some kind of shared incentive or shared priority that they're all trying to accomplish the same thing, get them to be able to talk about it with this new language, if you will, then get them to work collaboratively together for an actual common goal. And again, kind of continue to tie back to those patient centricity conversation. That's one of the things that was interesting, again, is that putting the patient at the center could be a very obvious and very fruitful thing for everybody to focus on. And it would actually align everybody's efforts if that was the goal that everybody was trying to attain. But you have groups that aren't working for the patient who are making a lot of money in this business. I guess that's the next kind of area for exploration here is how do you even get people to the table at the first place? How do you identify those shared priorities? I think a lot of it these days has to do with transparency and the transparency that is becoming more notable and known throughout the industry. As patients begin to talk to each other, for example, on social media or otherwise, and begin to pull information, then what you wind up with is a situation where 
this flashlight is starting to enter into these dark caverns of gag clauses and underbellies. There was just actually a lawsuit in which one of the large PBMs basically said, well, us working to keep the cost down for employers, that's just our marketing pitch. We are not contractually obligated to do that. And having worked in this business for as long as I've worked in this business, I can tell you that's true. That what a PBM, you know, who is a publicly traded organization, what they aim to do is get volume discounts. They aim to, you know, shake down manufacturers for rebates. They aim to do all kinds of things which make them a very profitable business, but maybe not so good if you look at it from the lens of keeping costs down, for example. But as patients become more aware of what's going on and start filing class action lawsuits, you know, there was another class action lawsuit that was just filed where a woman is suing because she realized that the cash price for a drug was less expensive than the copay that she was paying through her PBM. Like that might not have happened 10 years ago, you know, or otherwise it would have been just this little lawsuit from this, you know, one individual in Michigan. But now... It's made the news. So I think right. that, I think that given some of the transparency based on where we are in the time-space continuum that's starting to happen, it is definitely probably one of the main incentives that some of these organizations have to make sure that whatever they're doing, if it hit the public's attention, that they'd be proud of their actions. When you think about transparency, and and I do agree with you that the more this information is out in the open, the more likely it is that we'll be able to do something positive about it. But what timeline do you th- are you thinking about this when you say transparency is coming? That's going to drive change. Are you thinking about that in terms of you know like the next one to five years, five to ten years, ten plus years? Like, what, where's your mindset on that? Because one of the things I think is that there's a lot of, you know, again, coming at from more on the technology side, I talk about this with uh, interoperability a lot and the ability to use data to make positive impact in healthcare. I think a lot of times people's timelines are just too short. I think that it's known what needs to be done. I think people just don't like how long it's going to take before it has the impact they want. So I'm always thinking of things in longer term, not near term. I guess that's a simpler way to put it. So definitely not a prediction. Mm-hmm. But do you think, to, to phrase it another way, do you think that price transparency or I don't know if you weren't necessarily just talking about price transparency, but just taking a, a chunk out of this information disparity between the patient and everybody else, let's say, do you think that that can have a near term impact on healthcare costs or is it going to take a really long time for it to do it and we have to be persistent with it? I feel like, and I'm going to turn around and ask you the same question, Don, but I feel like there are certain changes which are eminent. I think that relative to some of the earth-shaking system changes, it has to be a cascade. So I think the cascade has started. And I think that there are near-term changes, which you're definitely seeing, especially at the C-suite of organizations. There are pharma companies that are meeting with the heads of PBMs in order to try to figure out exactly how to move forward in a way that is absent of some of the just rampant gag clauses and things that, like I said, should they hit the newspaper, 
neither one is going to come out smelling like roses. So, you know, I think that there's a recognition at the highest level of these organizations that business models really need to change. You know, pharma can no longer be just a manufacturer of drugs. They really have to be focused on outcomes because, as I'm sure you're going to talk about, there's data out there, which you can't just make wild claims for example, the opioid manufacturers did in the 90s. Like today, if some of the things that the opioid manufacturers were claiming in the 90s happened again, I would like to think they'd get called on it because there's enough right. data out there to disprove what they're saying. So I think the cascade has started. I think it's going to have some first order effects. And I think we're already seeing first order effects, but I think relative to fundamentally shaking the foundation of the healthcare industry and rejiggering it, that that is going to take some time. Right. So again, I'm not, I'm not surprised, but we're on the same page there. And I used to work with someone that always would refer to like turning around an aircraft carrier and, you know, whatever the timing was, it's like it takes this many hours and this many miles of space to turn around an aircraft carrier. And it's, but it sounds like such a simple operation, right? And I think that's where a lot of people get caught up on is because healthcare is so personal and it's so meaningful and like, it, it's just so important to us. And then we're able to easily find examples of things that seem like grossly out of line with what anybody would think was correct and, and just, and it makes people want it to be fixed now. And I think if we can get rid of that now mindset in general in healthcare with the way we're approaching these things, I think it would go a long way because I agree with you. We're making progress on a lot of different areas right now. I mean, a lot of these different areas that you, you constantly hear people griping about and, you know, certainly like getting the patient more to the center and, uh, you know, making things more transparent and letting patients actually understand what's going on with their care, getting doctors to coordinate with one another in different care settings, the data interoperability stuff that everyone's always talking about. Like there's real progress being made on all of those. And I think it's starting to have some real impact, but I don't think you're going to see like suddenly healthcare costs stop going up and you know, all of our vital stats that everybody always refers to, like from the, the World Health Study that shows that America's like number 30 in the world in health outcomes or whatever. Um, you're not going to see changes in those things, you know, not for a long time, if, if at all. But that doesn't mean there's not good happening inside of it. Although here's the thing. I, I think that what fundamental change will take is a change in economic models or a change in the business model. Well, actually, the economic model drives the business model. So it's going to be a need to be a change in the economic model in order for change to happen. You saw meaningful use, right? Like how many people all of a sudden, like within the space of two months, got patient education in their EHR systems when all of a sudden there was an economic incentive to do right. so? So I think that what the linchpin of this whole thing is might be how fast we can alter the economic models that drive a lot of behavior, like interoperability. I think you even said this, Don. <laughs> I might be quoting you. It's not at this juncture a technology problem. You know, no. it's it's a matter no, of will, know. right? Yeah, it's yeah, and and my more recent arguments are that it's already done. Um, that we have interoperability <laughs> in healthcare. The the people who who need it have it, and the people who you know aren't, aren't able to align it to those economic incentives, they don't get it because they can't push it up that priority list high enough. And I think that there's that economic model that you're talking about. And I will say that largely across the board that whatever the thing is in healthcare that everybody's kind of yelling about and wants to have happen that there's not like some greedy gray-haired old man somewhere like giggling his way to the bank like the old uh, um, you know image goes but what happens is you've got somebody you know you've got a group of people who are in charge of say running a health system or a pharma company or whatever it is 
and they've got these varying economic pressures coming at them from all different angles, and they've got a priority list of things that need to get accomplished. What often happens, at least with, you know, when people say they want interoperability, that might be on a list at number 12 for this particular use case that somebody's talking about, but they're just never getting to number 12. It's not that they don't want to do it. It's that there's 11 things ahead of it that also have incentives on them and economic pressures on them that just soak up all those resources. And you can't just do everything. You know, I mean, it's uh, this healthcare is really no different from any other business when you get down to the ideas of prioritizing how you apply your resources, prioritizing what's going to be best for your business and what's going to be best for your sustainability. It's just like anything else. And anybody who runs a business, you know, anybody, like outside of healthcare is doing the exact same thing. Their items don't impact people's lives. So it doesn't, not all of them at least. So it, it doesn't seem as, uh, the pain doesn't seem as acute or it doesn't seem as ridiculous, I guess, to an outside observer that somebody who runs a print shop hasn't improved their interoperability between the company that they get their imagery from or something. You know what I mean? Yeah. But I think that in healthcare, interoperability does not benefit the company that is opening the API or whatever they're doing with mm -hmm. interoperability. It benefits the other party. So it's one of those situations where you almost need a reciprocal response. Otherwise, you actually are losing it's like the prisoner's dilemma yeah. or something. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, No, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and a lot of times, too, you're like opening yourself up to risk. So if all you're doing is, uh, especially if you're like a small practice, right? So a small practice on, you know, probably some less capable, less expensive EHR system, because that's your economic reality and you're not connected. If in order for you to get to the point where you say connect to your local HA or say connect to your whatever, your local health system to send them data, one, in many cases, nobody's giving you any money to do that. So you got to pay for it out of pocket, out of your own business, that money's coming. Two, you got to stop doing everything that you're doing and figure out what to how to deal with it. You don't have an IT team if you're like a small you know, two doc practice or something like that. So you got to figure out who can I trust in the tech world? How do I get them to do this? Then I'm sharing the data. I'm not getting anything back for it. And now because I'm letting this data out the door and I'm not getting any benefit, the only thing I have is downside. Like this could somehow hurt me. Uh, I, there's privacy concerns and people are always telling me I shouldn't, I got to be careful because of HIPAA. Blah, blah, blah. So there's so many reasons that a small practice would just say, wow, yeah, I could see how this would benefit my patients if I invested in this, but I don't see how I could possibly afford to. I don't see how I could possibly spend the time on it. And I don't see how, why I should override those two things to take a big risk, basically. Yeah. And I think that that not only pertains to small dog practices at, at kind of a different scale and level, it, it also pertains to health systems. And I'm thinking of this example where I was hit up by the PR person of a health system marketing agency who, and who had wanted the vice president of this agency to come on the podcast. And I was like, sure. So as we were doing the pre-interview, she started talking about preventing network leakage for example. And mm -hmm. of course, my response, uh, this is the Relentless Health Value podcast. I said to her, well, what if it behooves the patient to leak? You know, how are you distinguishing between patients who you really need the continuity of care and they really should stay in between the walls of the hospital or those who really should be getting the MRI down the street because it costs, uh, you know, an eighth of the price? Needless to say, she never scheduled the podcast interview. <laughs> Yeah, that was too close to home, huh? 
So, but my point is, is that there has been, and everyone that's listening to this podcast probably knows that even if you work at a health system, there is every incentive to hoard data. Data is valuable. Right. And if you let data go far and wide, basically what you're doing is giving your competitors your competitive advantage. To an extent, I definitely agree with that. And I'm up here in New York State and I do a lot of work in HIE across the state. The one thing that we've got going up here that I think has been very beneficial is a strong support at the state level and at the community level too for funding these. There's eight different RIOs across the state. And there's been a strong support for them, both at the community and at the state level. And it's taken a really long time. You know, there are some of them are like eight, 10, 12 years into it now, but it's at the point now where it's kind of become normal to share. So all of the hospitals are connected and they're sharing, you know, they're not sharing everything, but like basic encounter data, who showed up at the ED diagnosis stuff like so like there's a sense of it out there. And what you have now is you've kind of eliminated that as a competitive advantage for everybody. So now it's if everybody's sharing, it's not bad that I'm sharing. If I'm the only one sharing, then it's really bad because now all my competitors can potentially see what's going on inside of my four walls, but I can't see what's going on inside of theirs. And then that's not fair from a business standpoint. And it's not wise from a business standpoint to do that. Taking that first leap, I think, into sharing and being open. And this is probably true in, in a lot of areas. Like if we you know, just continue this conversation about transparency, how do we create environments that work like that where it's safe to share? And it can't just be, you know, we're waiting for one group out of the goodness of their hearts to do it. We need to find a way to get the whole group of somebody to do it, like the whole group of payers to share this or the whole group of health systems in a region to share this or that. And then on the the leakage front, too, the other thing that happens with that is sometimes like there, there's no option but for the patient to leak out of a health system. And I think that understanding those patterns, understanding where they're, where they're going is important because then from a health system standpoint, it, that might help them find who's the best partners, who's the best group to go potentially acquire. Do we want to improve our network to the point where we can satisfy these holes? So I think, again, when you, you have that, that data out there for everybody to see, if everybody knows what's going on, then it's not a competitive advantage to keep that locked up. And then everybody gets to compete in a different way, I guess is the point. I was a bit rambly how I got there, but that was the point. If all that data is open, now you get to compete on the next level thing. And it's a more valuable thing. Yeah. And, and I think you totally hit the, the nail on the head. You know, in certain cases, the industry loves regulation because if everyone is beholden to that regulation, then not doing it or doing it, it mitigates any competitive advantage or disadvantage. You know, a perfect example of that is the insurance industry. So they were, as individuals, very hesitant, put children on plans that were under the age of 26 or the no pre-existing conditions. But as right. soon as everybody had to do it, you know, they were actually lobbying for everybody to have to do it because what that enabled them to do is raise premiums because now everybody had to do it. So basically, they all won. That's an example that sort of was positive for them of having the regulation. I, I hear you. Like I moved the boundary for everybody so that they all knew what they were dealing with. Because, yeah, if they hadn't done that, if you had one group that was, you know, for whatever reason, felt it was best for society that they would cover children up to 26. We'll stick with that one or cover pre-existing conditions. And they did that. 
then they would naturally have to charge more for their premiums. And no one's even going to know what the underlying reasons for the price differences are. Exactly. I mean, it was the same thing with the tobacco industry where they were like, oh, no, you know, it's like Briar Rabbit. <laughs> Don't make us not be able to advertise on television. I mean, because they were basically spending billions of dollars on television advertising. But if nobody yep. could do it, they just saved a billion dollars. And same thing applies in the pharmaceutical industry when suddenly they all agreed. This wasn't a, a law, but it was a kind of a pact that nobody yep. was going to do premiums. Like, you know, there's no more pens and clipboards and stuff because the pharmaceutical industry agreed that they weren't going to do those things anymore. So I'm sure it had some public relations advantages there, but it also saved them millions, maybe billions of dollars. That tobacco industry example you just gave, there's another wrinkle to that that makes it even more fascinating. It sounds like a tangent at first, but I think it's relevant here because it speaks to the complexity of incentives out there and the complexity of understanding why people are doing what they're doing is in addition to that idea that they were spending a lot of money themselves to compete with one another, Congress enacted a law that said for um, basically it was like an equal time law where if tobacco company advertised on a TV channel and they spent $100,000, they had to put $100,000 into a kitty for a not-profit, like kind of uh, cancer society type thing, anti-smoking type thing to be able to run ads on that same channel. So the tobacco companies actually had to pay for it. And there was, I don't remember where I came across this, but there was a study done that showed like around the time when that was enacted, it actually started having an impact and cigarette sales went down in a like statistically meaningful way, like a couple of percentage points that everybody was correlating to that change. So not only did the tobacco companies want to stop spending their money on marketing, but they wanted to stop enabling this not-for-profit arm that was basically <laughs> just housing them and uh, and taking their profits out. So by doing this, they basically disabled that law, like the previous law that seemed to be having some positive impact. So again, like it would seem counterintuitive for a group to uh, lobby against themselves but in that particular case, it was doubly in their benefit to do so. And I think you can, you know, as you examine these things, that was what I was getting at earlier. It was like, sometimes it doesn't make sense on the surface. When you identify those things underneath, then it starts to make sense. Yeah. And I'm going to actually circle this back even to patient centricity, Don. I'm going to, I think I'm going to be able to make that clasp. I, I think there's a lot of people, I think everybody, really very much like simple answers to hard questions. And I think if you're dealing with a complex system that's full of interdependency, some which are hard to detect, and nonlinear responses, actually, there's this great quote. It's something like, to every question, there's an answer which is elegant, simple, and completely wrong. <laughs> yep, I've heard that. And I think that, you know, relative to patient centricity, I definitely agree with you that if we all have a common end game, which would seem logically to be the patient, that if we're all just working hard in pursuit of better patient outcomes, that we all should wind up being aligned at some level. But I think even that we can fall prey to heuristics, which, you know, what they say, models are useful, but they're not true. Right. Um, you know, we can fall victim to kind of simplistic thinking that at the end of the day sounds good, but it, it doesn't work. And as we talk about the patient, here's something that I kind of have been realizing more and more lately. You can say, we're going to focus on the patient, but what you mean is, you're focusing on the entire customer experience, not just the patient at that one moment in time. 
we have to be concerned about the framework through which this patient journeys. And that means they're moving from organization to organization. It means that they are moving throughout their own care journey. And that's the hard, complicated answer to a question which is actually hard and complicated. Yeah, I'm with you. And you actually, you tie that back to the Kahneman book again then too, where he's talking about the system one kind of like intuitive snap reactions that we have to things where it's all the heuristics and it's just our brain responds to what it sees around it and it provides an answer as opposed to system two thinking, which is the now we sit back and we examine that stimuli and we really think it through and we apply logic and reason and everything else. And our brain wants to do that first one. And it tries to provide a quick answer. But as he put it, it's often answering the wrong question. And it's uh, it's usually a simpler question. The brain like kind of simplifies everything that it sees and like tries to give that simple answer to the simple question. And oftentimes it does sound good. Like he said, it's just it sounds good, but it's not the right it's not it's not answering the right question. So that's a good tie back to that as well. Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, exactly to that point that if you're not necessarily responsible for your entire businesses, you know, your entire corporation's P&L, I mean, maybe you're responsible for the P&L for your department, but there could be distinctive differences in what benefits your department versus what benefits the entire corporation, right? So you, you get these odd scenarios. You know, I interviewed Alex Young from Ernst & Young. And one of the things that she said that was interesting and intriguing and definitely true. She, she basically said, look, if you're an employer these days and you don't realize there are five middlemen that are sitting in between the healthcare that your employees are receiving and you and your checkbook and each of them is taking a cut, she's like, shame on you. This is very evident and it's definitely out there. The thing is, though, is that in order to tackle the fact that you recognize this exists, in order to make that information actionable, it's mm -hmm. hard. It's really difficult. Like you have to jigger things that the risk adverse and, you know, the more entrenched and complicated things are, the more risk averse people tend to be. You got to shake things up that could feel very risky. The other thing that happens there, too, is just in that particular example where the people who are making these purchasing decisions for, at the employer level at the healthcare plans aren't always in, tooled and enabled to do a good job at it. And they're like, they're, they have their own level of uh, information disparity. And this is an argument that a lot of people are, are starting to make, you know, Dave Chase, the most notable that comes to mind. That's a big thing that he's always talking about is that you're putting these people in a position to do a job that, that they don't know how to do. And they're, you know, it's usually just kind of dropped on whoever is the HR director. And it's like, okay, you're going to go pick our plans. And everyone kind of closes their eyes and cross their fingers. And they say, geez, I hope our our healthcare spend only goes up like 8% this year. That'd be fabulous. <laughs> so not a good recipe for those for those folks to be able to kind of uh, beat the entrenched system, if you will, or at least impact a change on the entrenched system. So uh, while I agree with Alex that we've all got to take responsibility for this and, and, and take our own actions, I'm, I'm just acknowledging that the the odds are stacked against the people who we need to take those responsibilities right now. Hopefully that's starting to change. Yeah, totally. Actually, circling also back to the Dr. Ann Beale conversation, one of the things that she said was that in her generation, many of the challenges in healthcare and elsewhere were defined by the haves and the have-nots. She said now, though, she switched that up. She said the challenges are now defined by the knows and the don't knows <laughs> and the, the ease of information that's out there. You know, it's, it's easy to get information, but 
the need to be able to filter it and determine what works and focus to make appropriate decisions. She said that is going to be the challenge for this generation. Gotcha. So it's not knowing the information versus not knowing the information. It's knowing that information exists and having the tool set to go out and find it for the appropriate situation and process it versus not knowing how to do that. Is that kind of how you're you're saying that? Yeah, that's how I took it. And she was speaking okay. specifically relative to patients, especially as there is more transparency and, and you can go online and, and, you know, like I interviewed Andrew Shore from Patient Power. There's like 40,000 oncology patients on a, in a Facebook group and you should see the information that they're sharing amongst each other and really getting mm-hmm. a bead on what's working and what's not working and who's doing what and who's doing a good job and who's got gag clauses. Like they're sharing all kinds of things. You have this transparency that is really starting to shed light into these dark corners of these legacy players, which means that employers need to keep up, just like Alex Young said, because they're going to start getting employees. And as these high deductible plans proliferate, you're going to get employees who are demanding action, I think, of their employers. But then also of other stakeholders within the marketplace, like a groundswell. We always talk about the triple aim has turned into the quad quadruple aim. The the fourth aim being mm-hmm. um, provider, you know, physician and, and other care extender nurses satisfaction. I really feel like you're going to get a groundswell there also because they can see some of the impact of some of these shadowy underbellies. They're in a position to observe this stuff going on and who better to act? That's an interesting thing that I've thought a bunch about is what if you flip the model and instead of saying we're going to be patient centric, which carries all kinds of positive connotations to it and kind of looks good in print and, you know, sounds noble. And what if you said we're going to be clinician centric and we're going to make sure that our clinicians are the, the like the happiest clinicians around, let's take a health system. We're going to make sure our clinicians are the happiest clinicians around, that they have all the tools that they need and that basically they are fully supported. And then you enable with that, I guess what, what I'm speculating on is that if you do that, you will then enable the natural desire of most physicians, most clinicians out there who entered their line of work because they want to help people and they want to have a positive impact and just let them do it. Like, would that then become the thing that gives us the patient experience and the patient outcomes that we're trying to, we're trying to force with all these other mechanisms? What if we just enable these people to do their jobs? It still needs to be like a team effort, but instead of constantly adding friction to them, what if the job was to just enable them? In one way, I wholeheartedly agree with you. I think that would be a very meaningful and significant end game. I would put that though into a segment of providers. And that would be, and I know some physicians get irritated when you call them providers, they're physicians. Um, <laughs> so there's, I, that, I am, there's that lexicon again. <laughs> yes, I know. I'm so at risk of offending people. But I would lay that responsibility and enablement on providers who understand that we are living in an environment, and I'm going to quote Eric Topol here, who said, the most dangerous words a physician can say are, in my experience. 
mm-hmm. because, you know, speaking of the Kahneman book here also, there is research upon research, which basically shows that if you have an algorithm and you compare it to the human mind, especially the individual human minds, in most cases, the algorithm will win because except in the circumstance when the human has seen exactly that thing over and over and over and over and over again. You know, one of the things that we talk about a lot in healthcare is, you know, how quality goes up the more times a physician does something. And that is definitely true because humans, and I'm kind of going to simplify this and it might wind up being sort of incorrect. So read the book if you want. But the idea is that humans really don't have intuition. (laughs) It's not some mysterious thing that we put together. Basically, what we're doing is remembering a similar circumstance. Right. So if you are a clinician and you're seeing a patient who does not have a condition or does not resemble the patients that numbers of patients that you've seen in the past, your intuition is not going to work. But we all have this human flaw where we think it does. This is like Steve Jobs invested in Segway because he had this misplaced confidence that he was awesome at understanding what products worked and didn't work. They did no research. He just liked the Mm -hmm. whole idea of it. He thought it was super cool. And Segway was a monumental flop because you can't transfer expertise. Your intuition will work within the box that you're in. So I feel like we have... There are so many tools and resources that are emerging these days in your realm with data and being able to evidence-based medicine that's getting better and better. As providers, we can't go back to a situation where basically a patient's care, the outcome a patient is able to achieve based on the care they get is completely driven by the experience of the physician that's treating them. Like we're better than that right now. Yeah, I agree. And I think the other thing that is often disregarded and overlooked is the fact that it's not just has this clinician experienced this thing before, but it's what is the current mind state of this clinician? Is this clinician at the end of a 16-hour shift and they haven't eaten anything? And how does that impact the, the way that their brain's processing the information and what is presented back to them? Are they having a bad day? Have they been having a, a fight with their spouse all week and they're really distracted? Like all of these things you have to remember, you know, and I know clinicians are are professionals, doctors are professionals, and they pride themselves in being able to work past all of that. But they're humans first and humans cannot consistently 100% work past things like that. So there's all of these other distractions going on, plus the inaccuracy at times of the intuition. And that's where I do think that a lot of these where there's a ton of hype around like artificial intelligence and clinical decision support and things like that. There's still a lot of hype out there and there's, these things are still young technologies that need work. But I think that's exactly what Topol is referring to. If you have a model and the model's proven, that model's going to be consistent. You know, if given good inputs and it's it's been proven to work, that thing is going to consistently provide the same answer in that situation. And it can be trained with, you know, all of the journals that are out there and all of this, all the new information that's coming out that no individual could keep up with. And it will just give the right answer every time if it knows how to get there, if we taught it how to get there. And it won't get tired and it won't get overworked and it won't ever have those problems. But that getting the model right part is is really tricky. So I agree with Topol, the concept 100%. But I think that there's this gap there between 
having an algorithm that works and having an algorithm that physicians are willing to use and consider when they're when they're doing their work cuz basically this stuff all starts as theory right so you got a bunch of data that's coming from all over the place and it is in varying degrees of quality and accuracy and you got to figure all that stuff out but you can only get so far before you start putting in real world situations and getting creating a real feedback loop and what we need initially is a good pile of data to start with a good algorithm to test based on theory, based on past outcomes, whatever, and then a group of willing physicians that will take that and will will seriously consider it in their clinical work where they have a patient and they're looking not to not to give them the answer. Um, I don't think we're anywhere near a place where we're like systems are going to give doctors the exact answer and be right all the time, but where it helps them and it says, based on all of the input that we have, patients like this seem to have this happen or seem to have this diagnosis and kind of just like an assistant, a steering, if you will, of the thinking in that space. So that's where I think where the technology and the data and all of that stuff can really stand to help a lot. But again, where, you know, like I said, I'm, I'm usually thinking in a little bit longer term timescales. I don't think it's like we're going to be able to do that today. I think we need to start doing it today or continue to do more of it today so that we can get better at it. And then five, 10 years from now, some of these things could be really, really good and could make a huge difference in the way that patients are treated. Yeah, and I, I couldn't agree with you more. It's not technology that's going to change the world. It's going to be good technology. And I yep. think that oftentimes people conflate the two. And if someone hits some technology that they don't like, they just assume, you know, they make these broad generalized statements that are not fair because they don't take into account good technology. And I think that there are definitely some excellent use cases. Like, for example, diabetes care, it's been shown repeatedly that if physicians follow a, you know, a, a tool Gawande's checklist manifesto, if physicians follow a checklist relative to diabetes care, and if care gaps are highlighted, that diabetes patients do far better than if, you know, it's just up to individual clinicians to remember to ask if they got the foot exam this year, or, mm -hmm. you know, this quarter. So, you know, I, I think you, you kind of got to divide up what's going on relative to technology, maybe into a couple of categories, one of them being diagnosis and one of them being then ongoing care. And relative to diagnosis, I, I was listening to a podcast and I can't remember whose it was. Maybe it was Tim Ferriss or one of those guys. But the guest said, it's not intelligence that makes smarts. It's taking on board different points of view. And I think at a minimum, one of the things that these algorithms can do is ensure that a different point of view is taken on board. And there's mm -hmm. certainly research also that shows that one of the things that I tell my employees all the time is think of three answers before you make a decision. Because just the process of coming up with multiple answers will improve your decision making considerably beyond just doing the first thing that comes to your mind and relying like that. exclusively on system one, if we are uh, mm -hmm. framing yeah. this conversation yeah, It's almost that. like it's a buffer against that kind of uh, knee-jerk intuition that might be applying the wrong memory or something like that, or might be matching it to the wrong memory. I like that trick a lot. I think we're talking about a lot of things here, Don, that are difficult. And I feel like 
it's going to take everyone recognizing that there's an issue, recognizing that change is coming, recognizing that even if you're within the most solid feeling legacy player, that we are reaching a sort of tipping point. And once again, citing Alex Young from Ernst & Young, one of the things that she brought up was how the HMO industry tumbled. There's no HMOs anymore. And mm. the reason why is because AIDS activists organized and they sued and they actually brought down that entire industry, which seemed really solid at the time. Huh, I never heard that before. Yeah. So as this transparency really starts to open up, I would not underestimate it. And, and there's lights that are being shown from a lot of different directions as healthcare costs, you know, it's one of those things that just, it has to happen as healthcare costs accelerate beyond what the shrinking middle class can afford. So I feel like there, that there is right now this kind of dichotomy between what the C-suite or the D-suite, you know, the decision suite of organizations are starting to see and feel. And as you put it earlier, it's this idea of turning an, an aircraft carrier or an ocean liner. The rank and file who have short-term incentives drive brand growth who start thinking in very short cycles, which ultimately diminish the overall organization's chances of one, exacting meaningful change, but two, of doing anything strategic. Because if your timeline is really short, basically what you get stuck in is this sort of tactical extravaganza, where essentially what you're doing is looking around to what your competitors are doing and copying them because you feel like that's the safe thing to do. But what you wind up doing as a result is running around in circles I had this situation recently, actually, where we were in one company who said that they wanted to stop doing this program because they wanted to copy what this other organization was doing. Then in kind of a separate conversation a month later, we had the opportunity to talk to that second company who said that they wanted to do what the first company was doing because they were very impressed. <laughs> <laughs> Should introduce these two. <laughs> They could have done some collaborating. But I think I just feel like that's an yep. anecdote, but it's rampant. So, you know, you've yeah. got the inside of the company that's just spiraling around in circles, desperately trying to do something beyond the tactics that they're kind of caught in this hydraulic. And then you've got the C-suite of the organization who you basically have to, th there's a culture change, which is totally necessary in order to get out of that thinking. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And the other thing that, that I've learned from the the years I've spent in sales, that, that's where this really kind of the shining light came from on this, is that the organizations like absolutely are often thwarted or often directed by the the whims of individuals. And like earlier, you made the, the reference to uh, department level interests, like a department's interest might not be the same as the organizational interest, you can keep going down that rung though, as like the individual's interest might not be the same as the departments and certainly not the same as the organization at the top. So ultimately like the people who are making these decisions, again, all humans and probably all have a mortgage and some kids getting ready to go to college and, you know, this going on and that going on and all of these different things. And then they have a short-sighted boss who, if they know if they bring this answer to, it's going to blow up. So they have to 
try to go in this roundabout way to accomplish what they think is best, but that will not make their boss yell at them. And then their boss is doing the same thing with their boss. And all these like weird mechanics are happening inside all of these uh, before a, like a decision is made. And it definitely does it like it misdirects the organization and almost filters the information that makes it back up top too, because then everybody starts justifying their decisions. I made it. I made this decision for these reasons. They're not going to say I made this decision boss because you're not very good and you get all crazy when I try to do things this way. So I'm altering it to try to trick you. Like they're never going to tell them that (laughs) they're going to make some other reason. And then that's going to get further filters. So there's this like weird information flow that's going all the way up. And I think that's where where the sea level has to be able to fix. And that's where the sea level has to be able to create a culture. And this is by no means an easy thing to do. That's why everyone's always talking about it. But how does the sea level create a culture where that stupidness doesn't happen, basically, to put it bluntly? Like, how do you prevent, like, everybody from playing a game rather than trying to march and, you know, hold to the, the the values that you're going after and everything else as an organization and feel like it's okay to make a mistake, feel like it's okay to take chances. And again, in healthcare, it's a difficult industry to do that in because of the high risk nature of it. And in some cases, just the perception of high risk. I think that that runs rampant in the industry. So it's a lot, basically I'll sum it all up as there's a lot of fear driving a lot of the decisions that are made at the individual all the way up to the top of the organization. Oh, totally. I mean, it definitely takes an act of bravery to do anything beyond what everybody else is doing. And I think in in a lot of cases also, it's not that people fear failure, they fear blame. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. And that just creates this static situation. We're just kind of stuck in this spot and no one can get off of the mark. But but I also feel like it's driven by this need, which is kind of rampant in our culture today, to have a black and white answer. And everything Mm -hmm. is a shade of gray. And if you're not comfortable choosing between multiple options, all which have a downside, you're never going to get a hundred percent right or a hundred percent wrong answer. That there, it's right. all somewhere in the middle. And, and I feel like Seth Godin did this whole podcast. He wrote a manifesto on the the failings of our education system in this country today. And right. I don't yep. necessarily want to connect the dots in a huge way, but I do feel like he he definitely has a point in the sense that critical thinking is something which is difficult. It's it's a very individual kind of thing. You've got to sit back. You've got to take the time to do it. You have to have a moral center, which is really uh, very clear. And in our hectic world that we live in, where there's a million priorities, which you're not going to remember next week, that are constantly fighting for our attention and we're distracted and we don't really have the reflection, the the time to reflect that is necessary in order to find our ethical and moral and just kind of human centers and to do the right thing. And if we're talking about, you know, putting the patient at the center of this, if we are unable to find the space and time to do that, then it's just like static on a podcast, right? Right. Yeah, that's yeah, that's why I mentioned that earlier is that it's like I worry sometimes that that concept when people are talking about it, not that I not that I think it's the wrong concept by any means. I think if everybody was to focus on something, that would be the obvious first choice. But I think a lot of times when people are talking about it, I feel like they're just saying the thing that sounds good. 
and not necessarily thinking of it that way. And I experienced this a lot on the technology side and the data side. Like, honestly, the concept of patient, because a little bit more reference here is that what I'm usually working in the data and technology side of, say, reporting quality measures, or we talked about earlier, understanding leakage patterns and you know, really en- enabling a lot of the, the the business side of all of this and the revenue side of all of this. And in those conversations, if patients come up, honest to God, I think it's coming up because somebody in the room felt bad that nobody mentioned patients at all in the conversation and they're bringing it up just so that the word had been said. Uh, it is definitely not front of mind when you're working in that side of the business. That could be a whole another hour long conversation <laughs> about why that is. But again, I've just drawn back to like, what's the economic model that stops that way of thinking, you know, that stops us from chasing data for data sake or quality measures for quality measure sake. Cause ultimately the intent of that stuff is to be good for patients and to lower costs, but it just doesn't always manifest itself that way. So at the risk of opening a whole new line of conversation after a very long conversation here today, we probably need to start heading towards an end. <laughs> and all right. I was, so basically I was going to throw out to you, what is the heuristic that we could start having that might be beneficial? <laughs> like we've talked all about all of these heuristics that are causing uh, potentially negative things to happen. What's a good heuristic? Do you want to go first? I have one. You did so, set me up well. Good. Well, then you go first. One of the guests on the Relentless Health Value podcast, I think it might have been Joe Murad, said that any entity, and I think he was talking about hospitals, but not limited, doesn't necessarily set out to become inefficient or doesn't necessarily set out to do things which may be counter to a patient's best interest. That anything an organization does is is the result of a thousand tiny decisions, just thousands of, of seemingly inconsequential things that every individual and every employee does every single day that add up to that result. So the one thing that I would say as a heuristic that I myself have attempted to embrace and that I hold myself accountable for is this idea of every decision that I make, considering what the net impact will be on patients, for example, and on their outcomes and on the efficiency of care. And I have to say, you know, there was a situation a couple of weeks ago where somebody wanted to do something. It was a strategic partner that we had. And I basically said, I am not a party to this. Like, do what you want, but I will not be a part of this because ultimately at the end of the day, this runs counter to the interests of the patients that we claim we serve. So I walked out. Love that. Um, good, so Good for you. We need you, We need more of that. I like that one. What's yours? All right. So along the same lines, then, uh, it's more technology and systems design thinking, but I think it applies elsewhere. This idea of what's the feedback loop. And a lot of times we do things and, you know, basically everything that we do can be broken down into uh, its own little system of inputs and outputs, right? That's all technology is. So you receive some, you know, inputs of something happening with a patient or something happening with your revenue or something, whatever. And then that triggers you to do some things. And those things, cause some output to happen. And what's the feedback loop there? Because you get in that habit of recognize a situation, applying a process to it, and then something happens as a result. And then everything else might kind of tool around it to account for what happens. 
But what is the feedback loop that you're examining over time for all of these little things that tells you whether or not it's working, whether or not it's actually achieving what your aim is? Because we always have some aim, right? And we're, <clears throat> we think when this happens, I'm going to do these things because I'm hoping this is going to happen. Are you ever going back and thinking about whether or not you were successful? Or do you just get in the habit of doing it over and over again because that's how you always did it? So there's my heuristic. What's your feedback loop? I, I think that's a really good one. All right. Yeah. So we got two actionable takeaways. All right. Very good. And to all of you listening out there, if you have any, you can probably tweet them at us or send comments or something like that. We'd certainly love to hear that. And Stacy, I hope you enjoyed this as much as I did, because I, I hope we can do some more of these and uh, um, come up with some new patterns for how we can uh, merge the concepts that we're both learning on both of our shows and, and, and share them with the audiences. And I will hold you to that, Don. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. All right. Well, then we are going to wrap here. And on the way out, I guess we'll both just say all of our stuff. And uh, you can find, uh, if you're listening to the Relentless Health Value podcast and you don't know who the heck I am, um, you can find me at thehcbiz.com. I'm at DFLee30 on Twitter. And the podcast, you can find iTunes and all over the place, wherever you get your podcast. And this is Stacey Richter from the Relentless Health Value podcast. You can find us at RelentlessHealthValue.com. And we are also on Twitter at Relentless Health, but Relentless has only one S, R-E-L-E-N-T-E-S. All right. Very good. Well, thank you so much for spending some time with me today, Stacey. Like I said, a lot, a lot of fun. Always enjoy talking with you. And I hope you all enjoyed listening to us babble on and on about all the things <laughs> that we spend all of our time thinking about. That we do. Thanks so much, Don. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.